Well, somehow or another, Meredith's phone number ended up on um, all of the Democratic Party fundraising lists, I think. So she gets texts regularly from Joe and Stacy and Mark and all the other candidates who want us to know urgently that if we don't give in the next two hours so they can meet their arbitrary fundraising goal, the fate of democracy hangs eminently in the balance. And then somehow the same is true the next week and the next I've been struck to how the word terrified has kept popping up in how people describe their reactions to the current political or cultural climate. And of course, most of this is just rhetoric. And the politicians don't actually believe what they're saying. And the columnists aren't literally shaking in terror at the thought of Roe v. Wade being struck down or gun control being weakened or whatever the issue might be. But that extreme urgency, that fear, they're being used rhetorically on purpose. In response to, as an attempt to play up, the anxiety and unease that are increasingly the baseline in our society. If anything, this season, starting with the lead up to Election Day and carrying on through the new year, is when these emotions are the most heightened. When the frenzy reaches its frenziedest, the anxiety its most anxious. And yet, we follow into that anxious world a Jesus who said things about his yoke being easy and his burden light who talked about not worrying, but instead looking at the birds and the flowers. And among the things that make the gospel good news is the truth that Jesus offers us a different way of being human, that in the midst of the culture of frenzy, his is a yoke that's easy and a burden that's light. As a church, we say we want to follow Jesus in a way that is joyful and sustainable. That we would go into the frenzied world, but when there, we would live the one another's from the Bible. Neighbor well and do justice in ways that are joyful and sustainable. Because living that sort of life is good news in a world of anxiety and frenzy. In the coming weeks, we're going to look at some of the ways that the world pushes back on that good news. The ways the systems and structures and cultural assumptions of this world we live in undermine and obstruct the life Jesus invites us to live, like a snake in a garden whispering lies about God's trustworthiness. This week, we're going to start with frenzy. The unspoken demand that we do more, accomplish more, pay attention to more, care more, help more, be more, which drains more and more until we're left with that sense of, I just can't keep this up. I don't remember how long into my freshman year of college the default response to the question, how are you, became, oh, busy. (laughs) But it didn't take too long. And I don't think it's ever gone away since. We heard it in grad school. Heard it from our 20-something peers trying to establish themselves in the work world. Heard it from the parents of Riley and Peyton's preschool classes as they tried to keep up with their toddlers. Hear it from the parents of Riley and Peyton's schoolmates trying to keep straight who needs to get driven to Temecula or San Luis Obispo for a seven-year-old travel soccer team this weekend. Our world has told us a lie. That our busyness is a sign of our worth. That if we aren't maximizing, optimizing, accomplishing, we're failing. And if we keep all those plates spinning, it'll all be okay. We're dealing with, in other words, an idol, a false god who promises life, but who actually, slowly, drains the life from us until we feel like we just can't keep this up. As I was thinking about what it means to live joyfully and sustainably in a world of frenzy, I thought about the statistics on mental health and anxiety I could mention the health benefits of slowing down and the ways stress is holistically corrosive to our minds and bodies, our families and relationships. 
There are any number of basically selfish reasons to want to live differently. But we all know those things. And the lie captures us anyway. And I thought, how do we know that it is a lie? How do we know God doesn't want us to be living that way? And that actually we just have to suck it up and sacrifice for the sake of others, give ourselves until there's no more to give, you know, like Jesus. And I realized that while it is true, of course, that Jesus gave his life for us, there's also something else true about God, almost hidden in the story the Bible lays out for us. And if it is our task to reflect the true God to the world rather than the false God, a frenzy, then maybe we should reflect this aspect of God too which is that they are almost unimaginably unhurried. They are almost unimaginably unhurried. The story of the Bible, after all, it gives us the highlights, the times when things are happening. And if we don't recognize that these are just the highlights, it can give us a skewed idea of who God is. Because, after all, the story of Scripture begins with God inviting humanity to partner with God in bringing God's goodness and justice to the whole of creation. And whether you believe Adam and Eve were an actual couple that God chose out of the early hominid species, or that they are an archetypal representation of humanity who communicate true things about who we are and what God calls us to as a whole, either way, God waited, by the best estimates of current science, almost 14 billion years from the first creative spark God lit to the first human partners God called. Whatever way you want to interpret, then, the extreme lifespans of the descendants of Adam and Eve until Abraham, whether as proof that the paleo diet really is the key to longevity, or that they represent jumps in time through the prehistoric ages, things went horribly off track for tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of years before God called Abraham to restart the dream that God had of partnering with humans to accomplish the end goal. Then after Joseph and his brothers end up in Egypt because of famine, leaving the promised land and the promises God had made behind, 400 or more years go by before God sends Moses to tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. Then those people literally wander for another full generation in the wilderness. Then their descendants keep metaphorically wandering here, there, and everywhere but where God wanted them to go until finally exile comes and another stretch of more than 400 years goes by. Before Jesus is born. And then Jesus waits for 30 years before even beginning his ministry in a culture where teenagers were basically considered adults. I wonder if the people of Nazareth would have been more likely to accept that Jesus was who he said he was if he'd started wowing them as a toddler, turning Mary's milk into wine or something. But that isn't the path he chose. And even in the midst of his ministry, Those three years when everything needed to happen, when we would imagine he'd be sprinting for the finish line to make sure all had been accomplished, Jesus regularly goes off to pray, wanders to the other side of the lake on foot, sits with Mary while Martha hurries in the background, takes the children onto his lap, waits three days after his friend Lazarus dies before arriving to bring life. There's something here for us today. In the most frenzied culture that has ever existed, where the hustle is how some people describe their work lives and efficiency and optimization are the name of the game and there's always, always something more we could be doing. God is unthinkably unhurried through most of history, waiting again and again and again for years and generations and millennia and eons. Why? 
There must be something about God's character that demands it. It must be the case that the goals God has couldn't be accomplished at all if they were rushed. That the unhurriedness is chosen for a reason, not forced upon them. Now, I do need to pause this theme for a second to acknowledge something else. That for some people, unhurriedness is forced upon them. I remember sitting in a service extolling the need for Sabbath rest once uh, in a season when I was, well, not unemployed, but underemployed, I guess is the word for it. And I was feeling like all I had were Sabbaths. (laughs) I needed the six days of work, not a day of rest. And there may be some of you wishing for a bit more frenzy in your lives, if you're honest, like I was. And what I want to encourage you with, if that's you, is to lean into the unhurriedness while it lasts, to use it not to seethe with frustration or find ways to anesthetize the frustration with TV or whatever your drug of choice is, but to be unhurried with our unhurried God, to sit with Jesus as he waits alongside you for the season to end, to listen to where God might be leading you next. Because God does not intend that we would never do anything or wouldn't worry about accomplishment or productivity at all, There are times when God acts, of course, but there's far more waiting in between the action than we might notice if we don't stop to think about it. Because it seems that, as we look at the God we find in the Bible, what we do, how much we do, is far less important than how we do it and who we are becoming as we do it. What are we being formed into? Into the likeness of Jesus? or into the likeness of the frantic culture around us, the idol of busyness. Our God is an unhurried God. Perhaps to be like that God would mean to be an unhurried people. When we were together, we had a three-part response to this idea. The first was to spend some time in Lectio Divina, a way of Bible reading in a slow and intentionally slow way. And so we looked at Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, We read it through four times slowly with some time in between each of those readings. And I would encourage you to do the same, to read those three verses slowly, then take a couple minutes to pause and listen, and then do it again four times. The second part of our response was to celebrate communion together, to remember the meal that Jesus ate with his followers right at the end, an unhurried Passover meal when you could imagine why frenzy would be creeping in. And then the third part of our time together was to have maybe a less than traditional spiritual practice than than Lectio Divina is for sure. We practiced saying no. When it comes to practically reflecting the unhurriedness of God in our own lives, after all, we run into a real problem. For most of us, there are far more good things to do than there is time to do them. We get the opportunity to do a good thing, care for our family, take on a significant project at work, volunteer our time for the sake of others, give our kids a certain sport or artistic experience, participate in extended family or social events, and on and on. And since these are good things, we say yes. And then the reality comes that doing all these good things leaves us frenzied and frazzled, feeling like we just can't keep this up. Choosing the unhurriedness of Jesus is going to mean saying no to good things. Choosing to not do some of the good things we might do because of what it would mean for our own formation. I think this means paying attention to when the frenzy is growing and then bringing the reality to God, asking for wisdom about which good things to say no to. 
as I alluded to earlier, there are going to be seasons maybe where God might answer that now is the time to suck it up and do it all and that God will be with us as we make it through that stressful season. But my sense is that for most of us, those are going to be relatively short seasons, not the constant reality that many of us live and that the world around us tells us we should live. If stress and frenzy become constant, we might need to revisit what good things to say no to. So we took some time to say no. If you are feeling the frenzied reality of having too many good things on your to-do list, then I would encourage you to do the same, to say no, even to good things, even though it might disappoint someone, even though you want to be able to do it all. What can you say no to this week? What can you say no to this holiday season? What can you say no to in 2023 as a spiritual practice? And if you are one of those who, like I was mentioning earlier, feels like you could use a little more frenzy in your life, how can you use this unhurried time to spend time with Jesus, to intentionally use the unhurriedness to listen and to be with our God? So I'd encourage you to do one or the other, to find some things, one or two things to say no to this week, in this season, and then for next year, or to find one or two ways that you can sit intentionally in that unhurried space with Jesus in those same time frames. And may you find that the yoke of following Jesus would be easy and the burden would be light as a result.